Welcome to Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. As folks come in, I'll get started. I want to welcome you and wish you a good afternoon. I'm Professor Larry Jacobs. I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Um, the Center has organized and convened today's program. Welcome and thank you for joining today's program, The Power of Athletes. I want to first introduce Dave Zirin, who's the author of 10 books, the politics of sports, most recently, the Kaepernick effect, taking a knee, changing the world. Um, it's gotten quite a bit of attention. Mr. Zirin has been on ESPN, MSNBC. He hosts the nation's Edge of Sports podcast, and you'll see his name pretty frequently. Um, moderating today's conversation is Doug Hartman, who is a professor of sociology here at the University of Minnesota. He is the author of Midnight Basketball, Race, Sports, and Neoliberal Social Policy, as well as Race, Culture, and the Revolt of the Black Athlete. Um, he, too, has had quite a bit of media attention, including on CBS This Morning, BBC, and HBO's Level Playing Field. Doug Hartman, take it away. Thank you so much, Professor Jacobs. Thanks everybody for joining us as well. It's exciting to see so many folks here anxious to talk about and hear about athletes and activism and sport and politics, something uh, uh, Dave Zier and I have interacted with once in a while and now have an amazing opportunity to do more of that today. I'm really excited uh, to be joined here by um, Dave to really focus on, and what's bringing us together is really his new, the new book, The Kaepernick Effect based on interviews with athletes and allies and supporters all across the American sporting landscape that took a knee um, after Colin Kaepernick led the way in 2016. Um, it's amazing reporting, incredible storytelling, and a subtle and sophisticated underlying framework to think about not just why people did it, but the larger effects um, that that has had in our sports world and in society more broadly. Uh, the plan for today is to talk a little bit about the origins and inspiration of the project. Then I'm hoping to get in some conversation with Dave to try to pull out some of the many underlying embedded insights and ideas about athlete activism, about social movements, about social change and politics that are embedded in the project. And in the context of all that, put, some, put this project and the activist athlete movement that we see in some broader historical and social context with respect to politics and sport and social changes, um, which are the theme of many of the um, activities and events that this center um, tries to sponsor and support. So welcome, Dave. Great to have you. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I know we had hoped this was going to be in person at one time, but you know, the pandemic reared its head. So it's, it, I'm actually glad we can at least have this happen. Uh, and, and even thinking it might help us get a little bit larger audience with the Zoom format, not just in Minnesota, but all around. So um, hope, hope you're ready for all that. 
Um, I'm ready. All right. I want to start just with a general question. I'm sure a lot of people are asking about it, but can you talk a little bit about the origins uh, and inspiration of this uh, of this most recent book and project? Absolutely. You know, Doug, it started with somebody you're very familiar with through your work, and that's Dr. John Carlos, the 1968 Olympian who raised his fist on the medal stand in Mexico City. I wrote John Carlos's memoir with him, and we've become very close. And a couple of years ago, we were hanging out, and John just sort of looked at me and he said, you know, there were so many people who raised their fists at track meets, like high school track meets, after we did it in 1968. And the amateur historian in me, it was like synapses exploding in my brain. Like what? Who were these people? What happened to them? How did it affect their lives? What were they meaning by doing that? And yet, of course, you know, I faced the reality that, you know, this was over 50 years ago. How am I going to go about finding those folks? But it did make me think really sharply about all of these kind of one-off stories that we'd seen in the media since 2016, where this high school takes a knee or that middle school takes a knee, this cheerleader took a knee. And I'd written some of those one-off stories uh, and for the nation. And it really got me thinking about, okay, what's the larger context for this? Like, let's look at this holistically. And as I started to do research, I realized, you know, we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of young athletes in the United States over the last four or five years who have felt the Kaepernick effect. People who were upset about police brutality, people who were upset about racial inequity, and that what Colin Kaepernick bequeathed to them was a kind of language by which they could express their dissatisfaction. He bequeathed a method by which they could say, oh, that's something I can do. I can take a knee during the national anthem and really protest the gap between what this country can promise and what this country often delivers, particularly to black and brown communities. So I started thinking about this at the very start of the pandemic. And this, the pandemic, which has been so awful in so many ways, obviously, um, actually served a great benefit at this point because um, I wanted to track down and talk to a lot of these young people who had taken a knee. And a lot of them were at home at the start of the pandemic, you know, very bored and very happy to talk to me. I mean, my goodness, these are, these are teenagers and early 20-somethings. I have a 17-year-old daughter, and believe me, I have to text her, like not call. Like, young generation doesn't believe in phone calls, Doug. It's like, I call oh, my yeah, daughter. I yeah, I call my daughter. My daughter's like, what? What's wrong? And I'm like, nothing. I'm just calling to find out when you're coming home. She goes, oh, I thought it was an emergency. So the phone call is kind of a, a, a precious space for a generation younger than us. But this was a different situation because they were home, they were bored, they wanted to talk. And so they really opened up to me all these stories of what happened. And what I quickly figured out was the real story is after they take a knee, not the reason why they took a knee. The real story is, is kind of like the backlash that they faced, the way their community changed or didn't change. And what I found was that whether we're talking about red states or blue states, rural areas, urban areas, there were obviously great differences, but also some really interesting commonalities in the stories that people told. And so I'm, I'm getting all of this information, I'm putting this book together, and then bam, the summer of 2020 happens. And I don't need to tell people who are seeing an audience at the University of Minnesota what I mean by that. Of course, I mean the, the murder of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin. And uh, then what erupts out of that 
is literally the largest protest in the history of the United States. And I don't think we say that enough. I mean, it hit all 50 states that had never happened before. And the sheer numbers of people in the streets was unlike anything this country had seen. So I get on the phone and start calling back the dozens of people I'd spoken with just to find out where their heads were at with all of this. And what I found, I think without exception, is that they were all either in the streets or organizing people to get in the streets. And these were folks who, when they took a knee, most of them, it was the first political activism they'd ever done in their lives. And here they are in 2020, these confident organizers against racism. And that made me realize that while many roads may have led us to the summer of 2020, one of them runs straight through the playing fields of the United States. And that's really the substance and core of the book. It's awesome. I, I think, um, you know, I'm a sports sociologist myself and um, had kind of imagined doing some of the types of interviews you did, but the a number of interviews you got, the way you got people to talk to you, how did you get that going? Was it really just kind of automatic or intuitive or organic or were there things you did in reaching out and finding even how many people to talk to all across the country? Well, I, I you know how um, a baseball player puts the donut around the bat and it's almost like a cheat code because you're swinging for a while and it feels heavy and then you get up to the plate and it's a lot easier. Well, my cheat code in doing this book was uh, and I don't know if this is best practices for doing a book like this, but I put out on social media, yo, and this was before I had a book contract. I just put out, yo, I want to talk to people who kneeled and what happened to them. If you know somebody or if it's that's you, the DMs are open. Hit me up. And I got several dozen right off the bat of people who were eager to talk, of people who wanted to share. And that sort of got me in my comfort shoes for how to have these kinds of conversations with people you know, much younger than myself, uh, people from much different backgrounds than myself. Like it, it was a very good primer in the kind of cross-generational communication that was so necessary to do the book. So I got in these great, and then, great conversations and, and then some things started to click with me. Like, okay, one of the things I'm learning from the people who were avid to speak with me is that Colin Kaepernick was not the primary motivation for why they did what they did. Colin Kaepernick may have given them the method to do what they did, but the name I heard so much more than Colin Kaepernick was Trayvon Martin, which really forced me to think about how young the people I was speaking with were in 2012 when Trayvon Martin was murdered by George Zimmerman. And speaking to them, it was like hearing civil rights activists from the 50s speak about how it affected them when Emmett Till was killed. It was something that scarred them. Emmett Till, of course, lynched and brutalized in Mississippi. Um, it, it scarred them in a way that they carried with them through these protests. So I, I learned that by speaking with them. I also learned that what I said earlier, that, that, that the things that they really wanted to engage with and talk about were what happened after the need. That came from them. That wasn't my questions. You know, and that sort of led me to really formulate and think about when I started to track people down and speak with them that this question of the fallout, it was very important to people and very important for them to share. Someone joked with me that I should have called the book, what to expect when you're protesting. Like what, do you, what to expect when you're expecting, you know, a little joke there. Um, but what to expect when you're protesting, because it's like, imagine you take a knee and you're on a team. What do you, what do, you do if your coach supports you? What do you do if your coach stabs you in the back? 
What do you do if your teammates support you? What do you do if they don't want anything to do with you? What do you do if you get death threats? What do you do if you have to lead an assembly? Like there are all these scenarios that come out of this work that people were very, very eager to discuss. Let me, um, I want to come back on the effect. I think that's one of the really interesting, it's in the title. It's because so often we focus on the drama, the protest, mm -hmm. and the conflict, and it's really everything that comes out of that that I think we want to center on. Before we get to that, though, can let me ask you, you've got interviews with superstar pro athletes, like awesome interviews with Eric Reed and Michael Bennett and Megan Rapino. yet well over two thirds of the book is college kids and high school students. And that's who you start with. And that's who you really focus on. Can you say a little bit about those choices, especially given that you had access to the kind of superstar athletes that most people kind of focus on and might expect someone to, to really highlight? Yeah, I was less interested in speaking actually to Colin Kaepernick, although he knows about the book. I was less interested in speaking to the pros um, because I, I really wanted to focus on the effect and also on the stories that aren't told. I mean, because th that goes back to the John Carlos telling me about people raising their fist at high school's track meets. Like, I, I had a real fear that that incredible spread of these knee protests at the high school level in particular were going to get memory hold by our society. I mean, we see this in periods of big social upheaval, which I think this current period really does represent. You know, you see, you know, the, the extillation and the, you know, political uh, um, sanding down of someone like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X and but they're held up they're put on postage stamps but you don't hear about the thousands of grassroots people who actually did the work that created the social context for a King or a Malcolm to emerge and I could I could use that example with every social movement you know you have I mean part of that is that we live in a celebrity culture no doubt about it, which focuses on the individual. But part of it also, I think very strongly, is that this is the way our society uh, disempowers people. Because if Muhammad Ali, if you think he just came down from Planet Awesome to oppose the Vietnam War, and there was no social context to create a Muhammad Ali, then you start thinking, wow, I could never be like that person up on the pedestal. You know, the best I can do is just genuflect in front of them instead of seeing yourself as like, I have an active role in creating the kind of world where a Muhammad Ali or a Colin Kaepernick or a WNBA, uh, Maya Moore would emerge. And so that's why I wanted to focus on, on the people who really laid that kind of groundwork. I mean, that was my initial focus. It changed when the protests started in 2020, because then it was like, whoa, like there are a lot of organizers in the streets who train themselves by doing this kind of athletic protest but it, it really it really comes down to the fear of the memory hole and the fear that these stories would be lost so that and bringing out that the agency of regular young people we often leave out of the story and leave out of the movement can i ask you one of the things that stood out to me especially i think it was in well both the high school and the college chapter a lot of cheerleaders Yes. Um, are, are focused in the story. Do you want to say a little bit about that, that decision? And maybe even more so why cheerleaders um, mm -hmm. were so active um, in, in, in taking a knee or in, in all kinds of acti uh, activist activities in the period? It, it was amazing to speak to the cheerleaders as part of this book. And one of the reasons why I did was because when I was doing my research and trying, because, you know, I talked to a lot of people who didn't make it in the book. I was I read articles about people I didn't get in touch with. So it was very important that the book for me, from at least from my very humble perspective, represented 
the span of the movement and the actuality of the movement. So things like gender balance were important to me because so many young women took part in this. So you can't write, you know, so I can't like blindly just include stories of football teams, for example, because I would, I, then I would be guilty of actually writing women out of the movement. Um, you know, there were uh, white people who took a knee in solidarity. You mentioned Megan Rapinoe. I didn't want them to be overly hegemonic in the story, but I did want to have their voices in there because they're wrestling with what does it mean to be anti-racist if you're a white person? How do you offer concrete solidarity? And there were some interesting lessons there. Um, and cheerleaders were very much a part of the struggle. So I was like, okay, that needs to be represented and I need to try to untangle that a little bit. And one of the things that the commonalities with the cheerleaders um, who took a knee is two things. First, um, a, a level of frustration with the football team. Like this idea of, okay, we've got this movement, people are taking a knee, the football team is not acting. And several of them were saying we had solidarity plans for when the football team would take a knee or we had a meeting with the football team and several of the players said they were going to take a knee, but then it didn't happen. And there are a lot of reasons why we can talk about why that's the case. I mean, I mean, first of all, you know, there's the general pressure. I'm not trying to put down the football players. I mean, football can be a very authoritarian sport. It takes a lot of gumption to sort of go out against your coach and do something like that. And also it's very hard for any high school student, quite frankly, or any college student where scholarships can be renewed annually at many institutions. It can be very difficult for them to sort of step out and be seen in that way. And so the cheerleaders, first there was the frustration with the football players. So they felt like they had to act. And second, there, there is a culture among the cheerleaders of really seeing themselves as the face of their school like seeing themselves as the people who represent the school to an outside audience. So you have a football game, people are coming from the community, people are coming from in town. You're almost like the welcoming committee to the game. And, you know, let's face it, like in many small towns, um, you know, the, the football stadium and the Friday night game or, you know, or a college situation. I mean, that's the closest thing to a community space that we have left in many cities is people going to the football game, people hang out outside, people meet and greet. You know, there's a whole culture around football in this country that I think has grown over the last several decades because of the absence of, I'll put it out there, unions, for example, or, you know, the local Elks Club or things like that, like these institutions that used to define community uh, no longer being there. So a lot of these cheerleaders, they said to me, like if we're the face of our school and if we're the face of our community and we feel like our community is in serious trouble and we feel like our community is not living up to the standards that we wanted to, then who else but us? We actually have a supreme responsibility to, to have that knee hit the ground. And I gotta tell you, like Doug, something we haven't mentioned yet and it just makes me think of this when I think of some of the cheerleaders doing this, what's so exceptionally powerful about the taking of this knee is that when you take a knee, I don't care if you and I, Doug, are at the, the state fairgrounds or we're at the Super Bowl. If that national anthem plays and we take a knee, everybody immediately knows why we're doing it. You know, there's no mistaking it. it it's universality is part of its power. And that's one of the reasons why it's so incredibly feared. I was speaking with one of the people in my book, uh, Mikhail, as part of, um, of a meeting we did and 
she told a story. A, that, a student here in Minnesota at oh, this point, I think, right? Right, Dave? Right. I, sh I should have. I should have said that. Like a student at the U, and um, and, and one of the things that Mikhail uh, said, which I'd heard from other people, was that when it was clear that her team was going to do something, um, there was this effort to say, "How about you wear protest T-shirts instead?" or "How about you wear a sash instead?" like trying to negotiate the knee from happening. And it really is stunning how freaked out people in power are about the thought of that one particular gesture. And I don't think they're freaked out necessarily always because they oppose its aims politically, but freaked out about the reaction that it could cause among alumni, among fans. Like it, it is an electric thing and something we should, we should reckon with. Yeah, that's one of those effects. A couple of things. I, I really appreciate you talking us through the cheerleader stuff because I think it's both a, a gender story, but also a story about a physical practice that gets overlooked in the sports realm when in fact it's central. So appreciate you doing that. Um, and maybe I, I was going to wait. I welcome questions. We're, we're already getting some questions in. And there's one that seems relevant to what you were just talking about with the power of taking a knee. Um, comes from a, a, a listener here who says how hard a time they have getting their friends and family that don't agree to see this as a respectful gesture. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and we could talk to I often think about this in comparison to the clenched fist salute from 1968 and um, it's been kind of surprising and almost astounding to me how much vitriol's that you know against the knee which seems to me more of a supplicant gesture mm -hmm. than the raised fist. And I think you were just getting into that, but it's some of our listeners are thinking about that already and having a hard time of convincing others of the kind of, I mean, they get the power of it, but they, but not miss, not necessarily the kind of deep respectfulness of it that, that some folks see. It's stunning. And I, I expect a lot to be written about this. And I mean, this is something that that I wrestle with. I mean, first, just so people get the story, which which backs up what you're saying, Doug, um, people might not realize that Colin Kaepernick did not take a knee at first. He sat on a bench behind his teammates and he did it as a really an act of frustration. Um, it was August of 2016, Philando Castile, of course, from this area, as well as Alton Sterling, uh, Terrence Crutcher. I mean, these killings that were caught on tape had gone viral by police. And Colin Kaepernick, like so many others, was frustrated and he just sat down during the anthem behind his teammates. And even like video we have of him doing this, I mean, it's wild. It's, it looks like grainy security footage. It's because no one was focused on it. He didn't send a tweet that said he was going to do it. There was no press release. And it was one reporter who I interviewed for the book, Steve Weish, who saw what was happening. And Steve, who'd known Colin since college, made a beeline for him, was like, all right, what's going on? Colin told him. And then, you know, the, 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 the sky came falling down on him and it was this huge uproar. And then so Colin Kaepernick, he spoke with a former NFL player in Green Beret named Nate Boyer. And they came up together with this idea of taking a knee in front of the teammates instead of sitting behind the teammates for the exact reason you said, because it would be a show of dissent and civil disobedience while at the same time showing respect for the solemnity of the situation. And I think what Colin Kaepernick found out uh, is that if people don't want to hear your message, they're not going to care how the messenger chooses to dress it up. But I think that act of taking the knee, I mean, it 
puts in people's head this idea of rebellion because in a way that like nothing else because and i think it has to do with the frankly the politics of the national football league i could be way wrong about this doug but this is just the way my, my mind works around this is that you know the nfl is this multi-billion dollar cultural spectacle it's the closest thing to a monoculture we have in the united states it's so incredibly popular relative to other sports and it also absolutely depends on racial and labor discipline um, and the racial discipline is a league that's 70% African American, and there is not one uh, Black American or Black uh, owner, uh, franchise owner. Um, and, and that contradiction and the absence of Black coaches, the absence of Black executives, is why Michael Bennett, uh, the football player who I wrote a book with, who I interview in the book, he says the, the, the NFL is a segregated product, not an integrated product, because it's segregated between those who play and those who stay for decades uh, just raking in the dough for doing it. So, and that's a contradiction at the heart of the sport. And so that racial and labor discipline and that top-down, very vertical structure of power, Colin Kaepernick upset that dramatically when he took that knee. And I think that's what people who are against the knee into it. And I think, thank, frankly, a lot of the people who took the knee into it that as well is a saying that like, you know, particularly during that anthem space is saying, I'm not gonna go along and get along with this very political anthem in this very political gesture if I can't deal with the fact that police, as Colin Kaepernick said, are leaving bodies in the streets and getting away with murder. There's so much in there. I, I'm trying to stay disciplined here and not let myself get into the uh, details. I, I think there's a really interesting story, for example, starting back from Kaepernick of, what it means to participate in the ceremonies versus sitting on the sidelines and participating as a protester is in a certain sense, an act of respecting the ritual or the ceremony. I mean, this is what I've argued about the 68 Olympics protest. It supercharged the ceremony in a way that people who talk about boycotts or sitting out, they miss the powerful symbolism of sport and how it ties into politics and, 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 and um, patriotism and militarism and all those things. Um, I want to just I mean, real quick. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, think, I, I think you just said something really smart that I hadn't factored in, and I just want to underline it. Like that gesture of sitting during the anthem is a very passive gesture. You know, it's like I support anybody's right to do that, to be very clear, but it's a gesture of passivity. Like taking that knee, you know, is a move forward. It, it's, it, it ha there, there's a, there's a powerful political aggression to it because it's saying, I'm very tuned in to what's happening right now. And I don't like it. And I think that also gives it a certain power that just sitting does not does not bring to the table. I can't help but mention one example from the 60s era of uh, Vince Matthews and Wayne Colette in 1972, who were teammates of Smith and Carlos in 68, had similar ideas about the black power situation. And they chose when they got their medals not to mount the victory stand ceremony. Um, and they were kicked out, too, but they're forgotten because they didn't participate in the ceremony and protest the way that that others have to really use this, this formats. All right, I should move on because uh, we plan to get into the effects a little bit more and I've got questions coming in on that. Um, so you talked about the effects a little bit, what came out of all this? Um, and I'm wondering if we can kind of flesh that out a little more. Um, and not only, um, I think, for participants and their lessons, but those who are in these communities uh, who are reacting and responding in different ways, what do we, what do we learn? What, what, what was changing? What was being affected? Uh, and what do we learn from all that? 
Well, one of the effects is what was exposed in all of these communities, because one of the things that binds all these stories, whether it's red states, blue states, rural areas, urban areas, is that the gesture of taking the knee is, of course, a nonviolent gesture of civil disobedience. It's exceptionally nonviolent, uh, of course. And yet the response in all these cases is the threat of violence or the actuality of violence. And I think that's really a stunning statement about character, the character of the United States in this moment, particularly the character of a good portion of white America right now in the United States, which we're seeing in so many different ways from, from mask debates to critical race theory. I mean, we can talk about that, but I think this was really exposed with all the people taking a knee because the response was so, was so vicious. It was them saying, there was no let's agree to disagree or let's disagree without being disagreeable or god forbid gee let me hear what you have to say i'd like to hear the perspective of a 17 year old about racism and me as a 50 year old white dude might have something to learn from a 17 year old black woman who's taking a knee in a softball game about what, why she feels the way she does there was none of that you know there was some of that i shouldn't say that but but the, but in each case though you had i don't like what you have to say Therefore, I'm going to respond with a, a violent impulse. And I think that that first is just very evocative about where we are as a country. But it wasn't all like that, as I, as I hinted. Like in some of these cases, you have like real stories of triumph. Like the whole point of taking the knee, and all of them said this, was to try to impose a conversation on a community that was not willing to have a conversation. And in many of the places, not all of them, that conversation did happen. I mean, so one of the stories about a um, one, one athlete in New Orleans who had never before done anything, and then she takes a knee, and you know, in, in a whirlwind of a situation, she's leading an assembly. You know, and this was Peyton Manning's high school in New Orleans. It's a very predominantly white institution, and she's all of a sudden speaking truth to the entire school and. Uh, her teachers are patting her on the back in the hallway, and you'll, you'll love this, Doug, and they're calling her Smith and Carlos. They're saying, like, hey, it's, hey, it's Tommy Smith. Hey, it's Johnny Carlos. And that's actually another thing I learned in doing the book, and you'll very much appreciate this, Doug, is that very few of the people I spoke with had any extensive knowledge of the, hist the rich history of sports and struggle. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, but yet after they did it, they, they, it was like, you know, like learning really quickly. Like they started to learn, you know, they had teachers who gave them books or articles. They started Googling and, and, and they learned about this rich tradition. And a lot of them said, wow, without even realizing it, I'm now standing on the shoulders of giants. Let me back up. I, I want to come back to that. There are a quick question though. You were talking about the kind of politics and the threats of violence. Um, I think I know the answer, but I want to pose it to you. Is this about the politics of sport or is it about the politics of contemporary America that was really being revealed in these reactions? I mean, one is so deeply baked into the other. I wouldn't know how to uh, disentangle them, except to say that, you know, there, there are people who, and many, many, many people who go to sports, of course, to escape. And to have someone impose, like, a, a political perspective on a space that you don't want to, see, that you have sort of set aside for yourself and say, I don't want to see this. One of the things I've said about the knee from 
from the beginning because of something that happened with my family um, is that the knee has the capacity to sever segregation and puncture privilege. And what I mean by that is that it forces a, a white audience that has the luxury to not think about police violence and racial inequity to actually have to stare it in the face. And I had someone in my family who was, to be very clear, was transformed by that process. Like somebody who listened to sports radio and not regular radio, someone who was able to live a life without knowing the names Philando Castile and Alton Sterling and Sandra Bland, was able to live blissfully unaware of the viral videos. But when athletes started to do it, well, then it became something that he actually had to reckon with. And he reckoned with it, fortunately, in a positive way, but some people reckoned with it in an extremely negative way. Like, how dare you talk to me about this? And then all the tropes come out, Doug, like, like, why aren't you grateful to be an athlete? Why aren't you like the, the gratitude question is always there, you know, and, and I think that is something that exposed itself. But one other thing, too, because you talked about the Kaepernick effect um, and, I, and, I, and one of my arguments is that just by taking the knee and other people taking the knee, it sort of turns upside down the, the, the labor and racial discipline that exists in a sport in the sports world. I think that sent shockwaves through the powers that be in the sports world. Because, and I don't think you see things like the loosening up of college rules on name, image, and likeness, for example. I don't think you see the Washington football team change its name. I mean, there are all sorts of of little piece, piecemeal reforms that we've seen along the way. You know, even the Olympics sort of, they're still clutching rule 50 with their hands, which prevents protest on the podium, but trying to create like safe spaces for political engagement and things like that. I mean, all of this is a result of, of the Kaepernick effect. Yeah, let's, let's dive into that a bit. I, one note for a, a, a one of our listeners, just to clarify. So Kaepernick's uh, protest really emerged fall 2016 or late summer fall 2016 that's when this started a lot of Dave's interviews are then with athletes and other allies from 16 but it's 17 18 the years after that um, so that's the context of the book I'm sorry if you weren't quite clear on that all right. um, <laughs> I, I'd also say it's important to think about this movement we we're talking history I was actually a history major as an undergrad so soft spot in my heart there um, but the, you know, this movement started well before Kaepernick too. Um, right. You know, you mentioned Travion and a lot of the other folks. Um, I, I give a plug, a shout out to the Minnesota Lynx, uh, a, a pro team that really uh, did a lot to use their platform. Um, so, so that's kind of a, it's a decade long of activism. I'd want everybody to know. Days really starts with focusing from Kaepernick in 2016, but then what happens um, after that, could we say, could you say a little bit more about the sporting establishment? Maybe you start, you were just starting to talk to that, to that. And to me, it seems like there's some sports institutions, there was kind of a backlash. Others were more tolerant, if not supportive. Um, and then there were some that, you know, really stood out and stood up. Um, are you seeing changes um, in the sporting establishment with respect to both protests specifically, but politics more generally? I'll tell you, Doug, I'm seeing a lot of carrot and a lot of stick. Um, the carrot is starting things like social justice committees in the NFL, the NBA, the WNBA, other sports. So athletes who want to be politically active can be. That's a big shift from, you know, the sort of unwritten rule of no politics in sports. It's leagues saying, well, actually, there can be politics in sports, but please, please, please don't disrupt the anthem and do them within the parameters of what we're offering. 
And there's other carrots as well that have been offered. Um, I mentioned the name, image, and likeness, which is a small reform in, of a college system that I believe needs massive, massive reform. Um, but then you also have um, you know, the changing of the Washington football team name with something to assuage anti-racist both inside and outside the NFL. And there were more inside um, in the ranks, in the top ranks than one might think who saw it as an absolute anachronistic embarrassment for a league that's trying to be forward looking into the 21st century. And I, but I think at root of it is not these leagues having you know, the best intention for the world in mind um, except for perhaps the WNBA, which we can talk about. But when we're talking about the people at the top in the owner's box, the franchise who run franchises, th th there is an existential fear in sports that is never discussed on ESPN. And that's that the sports audience is aging. I mean, young generation of people have so many more options for their eyeballs uh during a given day and i'm not just talking about TikTok and social media i'm talking there's so much that that's out there competing for them um and pro sports is concerned that they're going to be left behind um as this young generation gets older and the audiences for all the pro sports are aging relative to where they've been in generations past so that's a real fear and they also realize you know they're they're in big rooms on madison avenue uh, doing focus group stuff, and they're well aware that they're trying to attract a generation that is more demographically diverse than any generation in the history of the United States, and also less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of the United States. And they're trying to figure out how to attract them. And yet I, I see this also as being like 100 miles wide and only an inch deep, because Colin Kaepernick, still no job. Eric Reed, who I interviewed for the book, no job. Uh, actual diversity in the executive ranks, not happening. Actual diversity in, in franchise ownership, where is it? You know, so you still have like the, the power structure is trying to preserve itself while also becoming more amenable and to absorb the dissent that's been created over the last four or five years. Uh, will they be successful in this? Well, I think they've already partially been successful. But I think one of the things that they're doing that they're playing a very dangerous game with is once you legitimize the idea of athletes being political, uh, it opens all kinds of other doors. Then we'll, and that's one of going to be one of the fun things over the next several years is to see what doors actually do get opened over um, in, in the next time ahead of us. Dave, while you were talking, we got a question in from, um, I think you'll recognize the name, Cherokee Washington. Hey. Uh, someone you interviewed, right? Um, I'm so, hey, Cherokee, I'm, I'm so thrilled you're, you're listening into this. That's amazing. Cherokee was um, thinking along the same lines you about the future of protest in sport, reflecting on the IOC's Rule 50, um, how coaches in colleges relate to activism. I want to throw something at you that I think about a lot, and especially it has a racial angle, um, that the sports world draws a lot of its legitimacy um, from its claims to being kind of progressive, mm -hmm. idealistic, especially with respect to race. And I know you've written critically, as have I, about the history of that. Um, but I think we don't want to dismiss it out of hand, mm -hmm. um, the contributions that sport has made over the century. Um, I guess and, and I guess the question um, or the let me make it as an observation. Um, when I think about the sporting establishment, I think the sporting establishment still makes those claims a lot. But it strikes me that they're relying more and more on our athletes 
and our young people to be the legitimators of those claims, the carriers of those claims, the real conscience of the sports world. Um, and I guess I really see that like with whether it's rule 50 with the IOC or with our colleges and universities, it's like they're not saying no, but all the onus for activism and idealism seems to be on our youngest and maybe most vulnerable um, athletes. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 <laughs> it, it's all about to me the difference between um, between rebellion and a kind of political philanthropy, for lack of a better term. I mean, are they pushing back against the agenda of the sports world or are they part of facilitating that agenda in the sports world? And you see, you see, you'll see it come up in different uh, ways at different times. Um, and then we have to be able to follow that closely. And I think the, the ability to critically judge each of these instances is really interesting. And they're playing with fire by doing this. And one example I'll just throw out at you, Doug, and this is going to be more than a little controversial, but I'm, I'm going to throw it out just because it's a concrete example, is the story that raged over the weekend about um, a group of NBA players trying to really push the union to not require vaccinations. Now, the league should have mandatory vac vaccinations. That's what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar thinks. That's what I think. Um, that's in the best interest of community health. It's in the best interest of solidarity. But one of the great contradictions of being a pro athlete, and I was just tweeting about this, so, but, but one of the great contradictions is that you benefit from organizing collectively as a union or if you're fighting against racism, but you're also in this hyper-individualistic mindset where you, um, you know, compete for jobs, you have individual contracts. And so sometimes that can lead to a kind of negation of solidarity, where you're very, very much looking out for yourself. And, you know, when you factor in the, the, the I think, well-earned mistrust of the United States and the, the big pharma about this stuff, I mean, that's the ground by which conspiracy theories can grow. And this is going very against what the league wants. But once you start saying we're providing a space for people to be themselves and talk about politics, well, maybe it's not always going to be the politics you want to hear. And maybe it's really going to go against uh, some of the things you're trying to do. And, you know, I'm one of those people who's like, let it be messy. You know, let, let's have the debates. If you're anti-vaccination, like, let's not let that go. Let's debate it. Let's talk about it, you know? Because I feel like these debates are always a reflection of what's going on uh, in the larger society, and we're not going to uh, we're not going to win these debates by bigfooting people. We're going to win them by actually having the kinds of discussions that you know that you facilitate at the U. Like this, and that's the whole point of this series. You know, it's like there has to be um, a back and forth, and and I think sports can do a really good job of facilitating that um, if we use it the right way. We've been thinking forward. We got a couple of questions coming in, probably asking us for a little more historical context. Somebody's remembering asked, "What about do you remember Tony Smith from Manhattanville yeah. College in 2003?" Um, I could give you some other names, but maybe using that as a springboard day, we could return to the motivation and inspiration of this generation of protesters, because we did go through a long period of many many decades where athletes weren't particularly um, activists. They might have been conscious, but they didn't display that in the same way. Um, and you've written about that history. Do you wanna maybe say a little bit about the, the, a little bit of the historical context, a couple decades leading up to where we're at now, 
um, what things were like, especially for those who aren't big sports fans and followers and maybe don't realize just how amazing and unprecedented the activism that we're seeing in the sports realm is right now. Sure. I just did a panel with Tony Smith, uh, Tony Smith Thompson. Um, and uh, she, she's amazing. I mean, this is somebody who was a college student at Manhattanville, a very small school, turned her back to the flag in protest of both the war in Iraq and racism in the United States. And uh, it got, it, things got very, very dangerous for her as, as the story went national. And it really says something, though, that she was alone on an island when she did that, that it wasn't replicated at other levels of the sports world. I mean, you had Carlos Delgado of the Toronto Blue Jays who didn't come out for the seventh inning stretch um, out of protest of what was happening in Vieques at the time, which was the use of US military um, munitions uh, to, that, that was really about training for the war in Iraq. But that was, there were not a lot of instances. But if you wanna go even broader than that, I mean, if we're going back decades, like post the, I would say the women's movement in the 1970s and how that was connected with sports, which was really significant. If you push onward from that, it's very difficult to find athletes at the, at the height of sports who are willing to step out and be political. And the ones who were, people like Craig Hodges in the NBA, who in 1991 attempted to get Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan to boycott uh, the NBA finals because of police violence and police brutality and uh, who did other amazing stuff. I could talk about Craig Hodges the whole time, but Craig yeah. Hodges found himself bounced out of the league. Yeah. Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, uh, 1996, would not come out for the anthem because he said he believed that the flag was a symbol of freedom and democracy to some, but a symbol of oppression and tyranny to others. In his words, he found himself bounced out of the league and they became like these ghost stories these individual athletes who were politically conscious, they were, and this is part of the reason why you didn't see more political athletes. I mean, people say, oh, it was the money or, or whatever. I think it's much more because these athletes were then turned into these ghost stories who it, like, were, were used by management to say, you better not step out of line. You better not be political because if you are, whew, you know, you could be like Craig Hodges. You right. could be like right. Abdul Raouf, you know, that this, and I think they're trying to do the same with Colin Kaepernick right now, by the way, in the NFL, it's like, don't be political or else, you know, we will bounce you from this league and you'll be done. Everything you've worked your whole life for a chance to set your family up, you are done. But I think you start to see a big shift with the beginnings of the Black Lives Matter movement and really with the killing of, of and, and stalking and murdering of Trayvon Martin. Um, that's when you start to see a shift and you start to see a shift for one very important reason that gets forgotten and one reason that I think is very obvious that we overlook. So we have an obvious reason that we overlook for why things changed and we have an unknown reason why things changed. So let me just say real quick. So after Trayvon Martin was, was stalked and murdered by George Zimmerman, uh, people might remember that uh, George Zimmerman was just not being arrested. Like it was not, it just wasn't happening. And you started to have walkouts in high schools all throughout South Florida uh, for, for Trayvon Martin. And I mean, by, by one count, I read 56 different schools had walkouts. I mean, that, that's incredible. And so the news of that filtered to the Miami Heat where LeBron James was playing. So, and LeBron James and Dwayne Wade, they posed with their team with hoodies on in, that, in this 2012. And that was really the first viral sports and politics photograph. 
And I think it had LeBron James, who from when he was a teenager said his dream was to be a global icon like Muhammad Ali. I think that at that point, which was almost 10 years into his NBA career, he kind of had his own eureka moment about and, being, and being, being that able was to with the clenched fist gesture too, right? That was a kind of hearkening back to a tradition of activism. Carlos, yeah. And, and an awareness about that. And I think that LeBron James, you know, people can have criticisms of him and I understand them, what have you, um, about this or that. But the, the thing about LeBron that's so important is that as the most generationally famous athlete in his sport, he was able to literally bend the league uh, to his desire for athletes to be able to have political space. And, and it coincided incredibly fortuitously with the NBA commissioner, David Stern, who was very autocratic, stepping down and having somebody a little more laissez-faire in Adam Silver becoming the commissioner. I mean, it's been LeBron's league more than it's been Adam Silver's since 2012. And it's provided like a force field for a lot of other athletes to feel like they can step forward without being punished. LeBron's league, both on the court and off the court, right? So, I mean, it's it just so massive, his influence um, at all levels. Yeah. Um, so, and what I hear you saying here too, is it's, it's really hard to imagine the activism of athletes outside the larger activism of Black Lives Matter, um, which I think is really important yeah. because I think that athletes in the 90s and 2000s got a bad rap for not having conscience, consciousness when mm-hmm. probably what they lacked was opportunity and support exactly. and context. And social media has been such a game changer. You know, I just interviewed uh, Olden Polonese, who people might remember. He played in the NBA for a ton of years, and he's uh, of Haitian descent. And I uh, I do a radio show with another former NBA player, Etan Thomas, and we interviewed Olden Polonese um, about what's happening at the border with the Haitian asylum seekers. Um, And Olden Polonese is so sharp. He had so many interesting things to say. But one of the things we talked about was in the early 90s when Olden was still in the NBA, uh, Bill Clinton reneged on a campaign promise to allow asylum for HIV positive Haitian refugees. And there were protests around the United States and hunger strikes on campuses around the United States. And Olden Polonies did an in-season hunger strike. Nobody remembers this. He did an- I had forgotten that. That's amazing to be Playing in the NBA and not eating um, in protest. And he got, no support from the media. If anything, what he got was just people dumping on him for being selfish, for bringing politics into sports, for, you know, all the things that you can imagine, just the the worst stereotypes of how the media responds to this stuff was all dumped on Olden Polonese's head. Now imagine for a second if that, and that was Olden Polonese trying to create an opportunity for himself. Imagine if that happened today. Imagine the social media campaign in support of olden polonies. Imagine all the reporters trying to look like they're, you know, hip and up to date and following the lead of what would be happening on social media. I mean, it's really been a game changer because we have a sports media in this country that is still the latest stats just came out is very old, very white and very out of touch. Just had a great question come in from a audience member, Dave who um, wants you to, what's your message to young white athletes and white folks in general about their role in this struggle for justice? And that's pretty much of a direct quote. Yeah, um, before I ask, I just, I've been meaning to do this the last three questions. I just wanna say again, how thrilled I am that Cherokee Washington is on this. <laughs> um, Cherokee, you, you honor the book. 
thank you so much for speaking with me. I'm very, very, very grateful. Um, I, I let the white athletes in the book, one of the things, if you read it, you'll see very quickly is that my voice is not centered in this at all. Like I'm centering the voices of the people who had the courage to step out and do this. It's their book, um, as much or more so than my own. And, uh, and there, I interview several white athletes about what they did. And I think what they did is a good blueprint for what you can do. I mean, first and foremost, you know, if you're upset about racism, join the club. Um, first and foremost, talk to your black teammates, tell them that you're interested in protesting, uh, put no obligations on them to join you, but definitely let people know that this is where your head is at and what you feel like needs to be done. You'll probably find that several of them are gonna be like, yes, let's do it. And the black athletes I spoke with said, we want more white athletes doing this because it takes the weight off of our shoulders and actually provides a degree of protection when they try to go after us as individual black athletes. I mean, it's a total like I am Spartacus moment where uh, people need to be able to step up and say, I am going to um, assert myself. I'm going to actually assert my own privilege in this situation to take the weight off my black teammates and express this very, very basic human idea, which is that nobody uh, should be killed by the police and left to die in the streets. Let me, I'm gonna ask you a little bit of a tricky, tough question. Um, Cause I get this a lot from white folks and, and even like friends and family, um, not just when I'm doing interviews, but just people in my life who um, say they're supportive of the cause, but really just don't believe sports is the right place. And it's really hard um, for them to kind of accept that. It just cuts against their visions of sports and rituals. And, and I think there's different ways to think about that. Some of them is kind of a high culture thing. Some it's because it's entertainment. But what's, what's your thinking and response on that? Um, and I guess I'm asking about that, especially because we just mentioned white folks and how they can be involved. But then also where there's resistance and hesitance, especially about athletic activism, protest in the sports arena. I mean, there are two ways to answer that question. Uh, the first, if they're really willing to talk and have a conversation about it, I mean, the ability to say to them that sports has always been political. It's baked into the cake of sports. Uh, when sports start in the 19th century in this country, it's built on this culture of, of the myth of inclusion and the reality of exclusion. You know, the myth of inclusion being them saying we're a meritocracy, anybody who's good enough can, can play. And then the reality of exclusion, whether you're talking about women, whether you're talking about people of color. So the whole, the whole history of sports is this fight for access. So it's always been a political space. When you couple that with the post 9-11 world, as Howard Bryant writes so convincingly in his book, The Heritage, uh, post 9-11 hyper politicized that anthem space in a way that makes responding with a political statement of, wait a minute, I'm celebrating this country at a time when uh, people are dying in the streets and police are getting away with murder. I mean, that that was something that just would not be abided and could not be abided uh, by, by a lot of athletes who, because of a financial partnership with the Pentagon and the National Football League, had to come out for this ritual before every game. So. That's part of it, is explaining the politics of it. The other part is just to simply quote 
John Carlos, and I'm, I'm going to butcher the quote, but basically he said, if I'm good enough to watch perform, then I'm good enough for you to hear what I have to say. I'm not a robot. If you want to go cheer for robots, find a way to do that. And I think that's part of it too, is when we say athletes can't be political, and I want to be very clear, athletes also have the right to not be political. You know, the, the point is to not make it so people have signed away their right to be fully human, fully, fully have full citizenship, basically. Um, if they are an athlete, um, and that it actually is a good thing because athletes are role models, whether we want them to be or not. You know, the old expression, you don't have to believe in gravity. If you fall out of an airplane, you're, you're going to fall. You know, athletes are role models, and wouldn't we rather them model being politically engaged with the world than just about anything else? Uh, great, great thoughts. Um, I got to be honest, we've I've got an au amazing audience here. We just had like six questions, great questions come in. We've only got like two or three minutes left. So I'll just tell you the topics and, and but then there is one I wanna ask you about specifically. There are questions about violence and radicalism um, in protests, about impacts on the criminal justice system, about which sports are the most radical or least. But Dave, can I ask you about sports media? Um, because I think um, to me, when I think about effects, one of the things that's changed the most dramatically in the last few years is the way that sports reporters relate to social issues, social changes, protest politics, et cetera. And you sit right at the middle of that where you started, when you started your career, where you started at, what you're doing now. Could you just take a minute or two to tell us what you've seen with respect to sports media on, on just covering these kinds of issues and the athletes concerns? Yeah, the specter of protest over the last 10 years has profoundly changed the sports media landscape. Like now, if it used to be when I started, if you were saying anything about society, about culture, and connecting that with sports, I mean, unless you were willing to do it in a really, really sort of dumbed down way, like, like, let me explain to you how the Karate Kid explains today's NBA, you know, unless you were doing it like that, uh, you were really derided and marginalized and frankly told that there was no room at the inn. In other words, there's nothing for you to do in the sports world if that's your perspective. That's changed so dramatically in the last 10 years that like my, my good friend, Michael Lee, uh, who's always been a political person, but was an NBA beat writer for all sorts of big publications, including the Washington Post for, for 16, 17 years. He's following around the NBA. Now he's the politics and culture sports writer for the Washington Post. Amazing. They just started another position at the Washington Post for a woman, Candace Buckner, uh, to have a similar role. USA Today has a position that's like that. I mean, this is a, a remarkable change in the industry. And so I would say to people who want to be uh, sports writers or sports journalists who are listening to this, you've got to know more than the X's and O's if you want to make it in today's world. And that's a good thing. I'm, uh, thanks so much. I'm sorry to see uh, Professor Jacobs back on screen. I think there's a message for us there. <laughs> well, I want to just jump in and thank both of you. Uh, that was a terrific conversation and clearly could have gone on for two hours. Yes. So we'll have to have uh, Dave Zirin back um, to talk about his reporting and my colleague here, Doug Hartman, uh, who I'm sure will be moderating uh, more programs coming up. Thanks to both of you. It's just terrific. Thank you, Larry.